This is A Word, a podcast from Slate. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. After the Civil War, the Republican Party was the first political home of African-Americans. Up until the mid-20th century, Black folks were more likely to vote for the GOP, and many Black heroes were members of the party. So when did things go left? The circus attracts clowns, and the GOP has been a circus for a long time. Whatever happened to the Black Republicans? Coming up on A Word with me, Jason Johnson. Stay with us. Welcome to A Word, a podcast about race and politics and everything else. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. Frederick Douglass, Jackie Robinson, and Ida B. Wells. What do they all have in common? Well, yes, they're all giants in black history, but they were also all members of the Republican Party, as were many African-American leaders and voters for decades after the end of the Civil War. In fact, more than a decade before most of us had heard of the guy named Barack Obama, a black Republican was widely thought to be the best candidate to become the first African-American president. Here's Colin Powell speaking at the 1996 GOP convention. You all know that I believe in a woman's right to choose, and I strongly support affirmative action. And I was invited, and I was invited here by my party to share my views with you because we are a big enough party and big enough people to disagree on individual issues and still work together for our common goal. We now, that was the late Colin Powell. He would go on to lead the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the State Department, but he voted for Obama and eventually left the Republican Party altogether during the administration of former President Donald Trump. Over the last few years, instead of elder statesmen and women like Colin Powell, former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice, or former RNC Chair Michael Steele taking over and sort of becoming the godfathers and godmothers of black Republicans, they've been replaced by political lightweights and online provocateurs and hucksters like Candace Owens or the Trump-loving, bow-jangling sister act of Diamond and Silk. Hey, y'all. Hey. Welcome to this week's Table Talk with your host, Diamond and Silk. You know what we like about Donald Trump. Yes, we please We believe that me. he is going to go and do exactly what, what he, he said he's going to do. Mm-hmm. I'm ready to feel like a woman again, so let the man protect, protect us. So what happened? And is there any place for serious black conservatives in the Republican Party anymore? Joining us to talk about that is journalist and broadcaster Clay Kane. His new book is The Grift. The Downward Spiral of Black Republicans from the Party of Lincoln to the Cult of Trump. Clay Kane, love talking to you. Welcome back to A Word. Thank you, Dr. Jason Johnson. It's an honor to be here. I appreciate you, man. My first question for you is like, what inspired you to write this book and write it now? I really feel like I began writing this book when I was in college at Rutgers University, Newark, that I learned all of this history, Black political history, that began with Black Republicans. And by the time I'm in college, I began to see uh, folks like Colin Powell and Condoleezza Rice, folks who I disagree with passionately, but I wouldn't say they were a grifter, but they were complicated. And then by the time we get to the Trump era, in the book, in the intro, I talk about this. I had a friend who, Black gay man, who told me he was becoming a Republican. And I said, why are you doing this? And he said that it was good consumerism. That's when I really saw that there is a robust check, a congressional seat sometimes, for the delusional Black Republican 
who is willing to uphold white supremacy and anti-blackness. And then you began to see the sincere black Republicans, they're pushed out of the party. I mean, you, you know, you mentioned Colin Powell, right? In the book, I break this down, how in 2000, when he mentions affirmative action at the RNC convention, he's booed. So you see this downward spiral. And I felt like, one, I think about Ida B. Wells. She said, the way to right wrongs is to turn the light of truth upon them. This book is my way of shining that light. Because what we have right now, how do we go from Frederick Douglass to Clarence Thomas? Ida B. Wells would be rolling in her grave at the likes of Candace Owens. I wanted to write this book to call out extremism, that who knew that faces of the Southern strategy of today would be black faces. And I felt like it was crucial to say, this is extremism, we must call it out. And black folks who are upholding white supremacy are very dangerous. So I want to focus on the title of the book. You call it The Grift, right? And that is very important because you are implying, hell, you're directly stating, right? A thief is somebody who takes things. A charlatan is somebody who pretends to be something that they're not. But a grifter is somebody who sort of gains confidence, right? Gains your trust, and then take something from you. That's a very specific word to use. Why do you describe the sort of current era of Black Republicans as grifters? What makes them grifters as opposed to just being opportunists or, you know, obviously sincere conservatives? It's strategy. There is a blueprint to it. So the watershed moment with Black Republicanism really is Clarence Thomas. I mean, this man changes the game. I mean, I, I cover black Republicans of the 1970s in the Richard Nixon era. There are some problematic things here or there, but names folks may not know, like George W. Lee, uh, Floyd McKissick, things I didn't agree with, but it, it was about black capitalism that could be complicated, but it wasn't about get off welfare, you're dumb for voting Democrat, get off the plantation, stop being victims. Clarence Thomas comes along and he found a way to appeal to um, white conservatives who will invest billions of dollars in him as long as he will do the bidding of the Republican Party. So it was a strategy. Clarence Thomas went to rugged individualism, even shaming his own sister. I'm paraphrasing here. He didn't use the word welfare queen. I interview his sister in the book, actually. Uh, he didn't use the word, but shaming people in his own family to say, look at these lazy, shiftless black people. And then he says, I'm the victim. So what makes it a grift is it's a thought out strategy. And with the likes of a Clarence Thomas and even some degree Condoleezza Rice, it's also pulling the ladder, closing the door for the folks behind them. So you are lifted up because of affirmative action. Now you want to end affirmative action. You are getting access because of the folks before you, but now you want to stop that access. And then in the, in the Trump era, it's just full-blown buffoonery with the likes of Herschel Walker, who came too close to being senator of Georgia. So the grift implies the strategy, the execution. It's devious, but it's also obvious. It's obvious. And they're getting away with it in plain sight. Here's what's also interesting to me about grifting. And I think this is not just reflective of the the black Republicans. I think this is sort of the Republican Party in general 
uh, really probably going back to around 2012 or so, is the idea that the grifter is extracting and not providing, right? They tell you they're going to do things, but they're not really giving you anything. And so if you had to look across the board, what are these modern day black grifting Republicans, are they offering anything? Because it seems to me that if you jump back to the 1990s, you could look at a J.C. Watts, you could listen to an Armstrong Williams, you could listen to some of the black Republicans in the 90s and say, okay, I get what you're standing for. There is a policy element to that. I don't have to agree with it, but there is a policy element to it. Whereas today, Candace Owens and Diamond and Silk and Herschel Walker and I don't think these people have any ideology. Is there an ideology or is it completely vacuous? Well, for Candace Owens and Diamond and Silk, no. But I would push back and say there is an ideology and there is a policy. And the best example of that is Daniel Cameron. This is a person who literally had a direct impact on justice for Breonna Taylor. That is disgusting and terrifying. I would also add Mark Robinson, who is currently running for governor of North Carolina. He's currently the lieutenant governor. He beat out all the other white Republicans. He is the lieutenant governor of North Carolina, and he has a good shot of being governor. He had no political experience. He went viral for saying that the that Black Panther was created by an agnostic Jew and was attacking Michelle Obama, threw him on Fox News. Now he is, he is lieutenant governor. Winsome Sears, Winsome Sears, who was the lieutenant governor of Virginia, went viral for a campaign ad with the AR-15 and telling black folks to get off the uh, Democratic plantation. For folks who think this is a Candace Owens book, it's not. I have like one paragraph on her moving on. But I'm really talking about people who have a legislative impact on black communities. And the blood oath they make is that you will hurt other black people if you can. You know, Clay, earlier uh, in, in a previous podcast in 2023, we talked about Daniel Cameron. For those who don't know, Daniel Cameron was the attorney general in the state of Kentucky. He was a Republican and he ran for governor uh, against the incumbent Democrat. And he lost by a larger margin uh, than the last Republican who ran in Kentucky. What really struck me about his loss is not just that this black Republican who you know, Mitch McConnell loved and Trump loved. It's not just this black Republican loss in a blood red state, right? It was the way he lost. It reminded me of Ken Blackwell, who was a black Republican who ran for governor of Ohio in the mid 2000s. And everybody thought he was the greatest thing. And he was considered to be a George Bush kind of black Republican. He was a secretary of state and he got beat. My question about Cameron and, and comparing him to Blackwell is, it seems to me that there is a ceiling that even these ambitious black Republicans end up reaching. You can kiss all the butt. You can be Daniel Cameron and, and you can basically stifle the investigation into the cops who murdered Breonna Taylor. You make sure that nobody gets held accountable for that. You can commit a full fledged blood sacrifice to white conservatives and it still won't get you the prize. So what's their incentive because it doesn't seem like this particular grift is getting you into the highest offices in the land. Yeah, that's the thing, though. Um, I don't think it's about the highest office in the land. I don't think it's about omnipotent power. Uh, and one of the people that I interview in the book who used to be a black Republican and left the party, he said that he was told, know your place. You will only go but so far. And you know what, Jason? 
he accepted that. And then when he stopped accepting it, you know the script, baby. He started crying racism. You know how they do? Omarosa did it. Stacey Dash did it. You know what I'm saying? Now, some are some are a little bit more crafty. Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, he was crafty. But with Daniel Cameron, you got to remember, he did what needed to be done. You did the blood oath. We don't need you anymore. You made sure that Breonna Taylor's family didn't get justice. You blocked it from, from them being able to charge those cops with, with homicide. You did the work. You've tap danced enough. We don't need you anymore. We're happy. We'll go on to the next. But here's what I always say with Herschel Walker, folks who ran for senator of Georgia, former NFL player, folks said, oh, he's a victim. They're taking advantage of him. He's not a victim. He knows what he's doing. And you know, it's funny. You bring up J.C. Watts. I have a chapter on him in the book. J.C. Watts, who was a congressman from from, uh, Oklahoma. He, uh, in the beginning, when he was running for office, a lot of folks forget this, Jason, he was making heinous comments about black folks. He was um, calling Reverend Jesse Jackson, well, he denied directing it towards him, race baiting, uh, poverty pimps, calling out a lot of people. Then when he gets in the, gets in the, he, he wins and he's getting all this fundraising for calling out black leaders. I mean, he made fundraising records. Then he realized that there's a ceiling. And he starts pivoting. Then he starts advocating for affirmative action when he was against affirmative action. Then he leaves, he leaves, he, he resigns. And then John Lewis is saying, Congressman John Lewis from Georgia, the late great, is saying, please don't leave. We need you there. So even he realized, maybe he didn't know in the beginning, but there is a ceiling. I didn't obey. And now, and then in one of the great quotes, he says, the Republican Party, I'm paraphrasing here, expects you to forget your blackness. So they, they sometimes have this come to Jesus moment. So did Colin Powell. We love Colin Powell, but his his history is a little bit nuanced. Not a grifter, but it's nuanced. So uh, I agree with you that there is a ceiling and they accept it. And maybe that's why some like Candace Owens or some of the other folks out there, maybe they're like, you know what? I don't want to run for office. There's too much money in this grift just being the quote unquote activist commentator. We're going to take a short break and we come back more on the downward spiral of black Republicans. This is a word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. You're listening to a word with Jason Johnson. Today, we're talking about the state of black Republicans with journalist and author Clay Kane. His new book is titled The Grift, The Downward Spiral of Black Republicans from the Party of Lincoln to the Cult of Trump. So, the book isn't just about sort of the contemporary Republican Party. You take a deep dive into the historic, you know, sort of black Republicans. Um, you know, who are some of the folks? Just give me one or two of the people that you profiled that most people haven't heard of. One name that I am excited for folks to learn more about is Arthur Fletcher. Arthur Fletcher, a black Republican, he is the architect of guess what? Affirmative action. He built affirmative action. This thing that Republicans are so against and they're so outraged over. Arthur Fletcher built affirmative action. It began as the Philadelphia plan for uh, equal treatment for, for contracts and construction work in Philadelphia. Affirmative action is strengthened under Richard Nixon. This guy is iconic and he has faced erasure in the Republican Party. Because he was somebody who believed 
in a social program helping black people. And he himself, he is somebody who advocated for Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. After he sees Clarence Thomas voting against affirmative action, he says Clarence Thomas is trying to lean over and think white. So he had the the courage and the audacity to call out the racism in his own party, even within black Republicans. So that's a name that I'm looking forward to, to, to folks knowing about. Uh, T.R.M. Howard, who was uh, a black Republican, and he was an abortion doctor. He believed that abortion was a civil rights issue. And he is erased in the Republican Party. Why don't y'all ever mention him? So you don't want to mention T.R.M. Howard. You don't want to mention Arthur Arthur Fletcher. My man, uh, George, George Lee, George W. Lee, he was uh, a big face in black republicanism in the, in the 1950s. By, the, by 1964, the RNC said, you are not welcomed. This is a white man's party. And they kicked him out of the party. There are so many figures outside of the great Jackie Robinson who said Richard Nixon will be deaf, deaf to, to, to black folks. Um, there are some great folks there where they are literally never mentioned. They are erased. Why? Because they weren't grifters, because they weren't hustlers, because they weren't con artists. These folks don't even know the history of their own party. You know, when I was reading through, and I, I did a particular focus um, on sort of the later years where I think the, the change really happens. One person that you wrote about, and this really fascinated, was Mia Love. She served two terms as a member of Congress uh, from Utah. And one thing that always struck me about her is that for all of her cash money talking about black Democrats and the Congressional Black Caucus, um, and she was a popular mayor, she lost the first time that she ran. And she lost, and this is so important for people to understand about how white voters will even respond sometimes to black Republicans. She lost in a district in 2012 that Romney carried 86%. Okay. So that means that all those neighbors that were smiling at you and saying, yeah, 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 Mia, I'll vote for you. Obviously, when you next saw them at the grocery store, they were kind of looking the other way. But I think Mia Love, if you compare her to Ben Carson, you compare her to Herman Cain, you compare her to that sort of middle era pre-Trump people who were, they weren't quite, I wouldn't quite call those people grifters, right? But I do think they had turned conservative policy into almost a parody. Talk a little bit about that era. Talk specifically about Mia Love's career, her arc, Herman Cain, Ben Carson. So there's some watershed moments in the grift. And this is why why I call it the downward spiral, because not all Black Republicans are alike. There was a journey. There was a trajectory. And I believe that many of them contributed. Many of them thought they could fight back against it. And some of them some of them thought, I'll be the great hope to save the Republican Party from the clutches of white supremacy. Um, with Mia Love, what they began to realize is a way to be successful and black in the GOP. There was another ingredient that Clarence Thomas wasn't doing. You have to attack President Barack Obama. Mia Love gives this speech at the 2012 RNC convention, and she goes off on President Barack Obama. President Obama's version of America is a divided one, often pitting us against each other based on income level, gender, and social status. His policies have failed us. We're not better off than we were four years ago, and no rhetoric, bumper sticker, or Hollywood campaign ad can change that. 
The crowd is cheering. She gives this speech. The next day, she is the number one trending search on Google. Her fundraising is skyrocketing. She gave the great audition. So is she a grifter in the way of of the, the cult of Trump that we have today? No, but she contributed to it. I think she was grifting in, in a, a way where she understood, I have to have a big splash. It, it is an audition here. And they will pick me because I am the black person blaming Obama for division in our country. And then after that, she is supported by this conservative white GOP movement that has billions of dollars to make her a star. But then she gets her wake-up call. When she loses re-election, well, suddenly, Jason, this is a somebody who said, I've never experienced racism in Utah. Well, hot damn, she's crying racism. Now, now it's suddenly racial. And it's funny because a lot of black Republicans, they tell people, tell black folks, stop focusing on race. Stop focusing on race. Condoleezza Rice will say this. You focus too much on race. But then when they're feeling racism, now it's all about race. There is a weird obsession that some, not all, black Republicans have with race, yet pathologizing black folks for calling out racism in the GOP. So Mia Love is one of those folks where she had her wake-up call. You think about Will Hurd. At one point, he was the only black Republican in the House of Representatives. He was from Texas. And he he's someone that I don't think was a grifter. But he leaves, he resigns, because he realizes there's no place this can go, right? Um, I interviewed former RNC chair Michael Steele in the book, and he told me, he said that there were folks um, in the GOP giving him talking points and wanting him to spread the birther movement lie. And he refused. And he said, this is the beginning of the end, what I'm not willing to attack President Barack Obama. And Michael Steele even told me that there was no place for black folks in the Republican Party. So yeah, you see this emergence and it is it is Obama. It is a reaction to, we have to showcase some kind of alleged diversity. It is tokenism. And will you be the token? And if you will, we got a taste of a check for you, a touch of power for you, as long as you obey the rules. There was a piece, uh, you know, when I, was, when I was reading your book, it made me go back and look at some of the writing that I did um, heading into 2016 election. And the piece I had written about Reince Priebus, who had been the RNC chair for years, he did this huge autopsy after 2012. And he said to the Republicans, you guys have to do better. And he put together a staff of people. I remember Orlando Watson. I used to be very cool. We talked on a regular basis. He put together a staff of young black Republicans who, at least as a staff, seemed reasonably committed to diversifying the party. They showed up in places that Republicans hadn't showed up before, right? They were showing up at at Essence Fest, right? They were doing the real thing. But many of these people left after Trump became the nominee, and they were replaced with people like Ashley Bell and replaced with people like Omarosa. Talk a little bit about those conversations, that that sort of last era of black administrators who were in the Republican Party, who were really trying to expand the party. And these people were conservative and how they were replaced or how they left because Trump came and became the nominee in 2016. This is really a, a great moment that I really break down in the book. And it's fascinating because I believe that Michael Steele did some really great work. And I believe that he was trying to reach out to uh, black voters, 
Michael Steele never said, get off the plantation. He never said, get off welfare. He didn't say, he didn't say all the ridiculous tropes. And I believe that's part of the reason why he was kicked out. Ryan's previous get, gets in, really tries to continue Michael Steele's work. So we have to honor that, that that work really began with Michael Steele. And you are right. There are um, some black Republicans in the party at that time really doing a different kind of outreach. And I can't say because it was off the record, but one of the things they were trying to do, Jason, is yes, they're reaching out to black communities and they're trying to point out, here are some policies that might help, but they were also trying to convince black voters that the Republican Party does not have a racism issue. I, I quote somebody in the book where she said, uh, I've never seen racism in the, in the Republican Party. So they're doing all this convincing. Some other folks you mentioned too, you said their names, all this convincing, hey, 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 this party is not what you think it is. And then Trump comes along. And if you may have had a couple of black voters, then he proved exactly what we've all been saying. Because if there wasn't a racism issue in the GOP, Trump wouldn't have won. And Sir Michael Singleton told me again, uh, he worked under HUD briefly um, with Ben Carson under, uh, under Trump. He said that after that, he said they flushed out, I'm paraphrasing here, if there was any more black Republicans left that had any kind of moral higher ground, they flushed them all out. That Trumpism just ruined it. Then you have the Omarosas. You have the Pastor Daryl Scotts that, that you have. He said it just, it ruined it for us. Here we are trying to convince people we have a space for you. And then in a, in a couple of years, what we all see is obvious. This party has an issue with the Southern Strategy 2.0 tactics, with Trumpism, and this party feeds off of white supremacy. What was it like for lower level Republicans when this transition happened? What was it like for... The, the the black staffer, what was it like for the black state senator in Ohio, in Arizona, who's like, oh my gosh, okay, summer of 2016, this just turned left. Did those people self-deport, to use the Mitt Romney term, that they say, look, I get out of here on my own? Were they beaten in primaries? How did the removal of black Republicans happen in favor of the grifters? In my research, there really weren't a lot of them in power, in significant power. There really weren't a lot of them in, in major legislative roles. So they were staffers. And so they have to make the decision, are you going to be a part of this blood oath or not? And the majority of them decided not to. But I, I got to also say this, this is so important. And I mean this with all due respect to Michael Steele, who was so kind in the book and so gracious. But I, I told him this as well too. And I mean, with all due respect to Colin Powell, the issue of violent, disgusting, horrific racism in the GOP has been around long before Trump. Ronald Reagan was despicable. He had one black person, of course, it was a HUD secretary, Samuel Pierce Riley. That was the one person that stayed for his administration the entire two terms who had tons of, uh, of, of indictments and, and um, accusations of mishandling money. Ronald Reagan waged war on black people. Ronald Reagan tried to veto the 1987 Civil Rights Restoration Act. President Bush did veto the 1990 Civil Rights Act. His son, his son's DOJ in 2002, I believe, filed a, a voting rights lawsuit against a black man in Mississippi named Ike Brown. The first time in history a voting rights lawsuit was filed against a black man. So it's really important to point out that one has to wonder 
Why did you think you were the great savior? They already showed us who they are. Why didn't you believe them? And is there something in your story that you're just simply leaving out? Honestly and truly, the GOP has never really been a a friend to black people, except for when it was convenient to them to win a civil war or for tokenism. This is a long story and it gets worse as it goes along. But one has to wonder at a certain point, what kind of work did you do? Did it was it worth it? And you had to be aware of their violent white supremacy for a long time. Maybe you thought you could change it, or maybe you thought you can get a piece of the pie. We're going to take a short break and we come back more about the past and future of black Republicans with journalist Clay Kane. This is a word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. This is Jason Johnson, host of a word slates podcast about race and politics and everything else. I want to take a moment to welcome our new listeners. If you've discovered a word and like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And let us know what you think by writing us at a word at slate.com. Thank you. You're listening to a Word with Jason Johnson. Today we're talking about the downward spiral of black Republicans with writer Clay Kane. So one of the things, Clay, and, and you and I have talked about this before, one person who is the focus of a tremendous amount of your ire uh, is Tim Scott, Senator Tim Scott from South Carolina. And I, I find him to be a particularly fascinating sort of fulcrum for your book and the grift because he straddles two eras, right? He's sort of part of the post-Obama black Republicans who are like, I'm here so that white people have this cudgel against this black president. But then he's also made this just absolute heel turn from just conservatism to to just lapdog for Trump. Talk a little bit about where Tim Scott falls in the grifting compendium. And in particular, some of the quotes that you got about him from people who worked with him in South Carolina and once he went to Congress. You know, this goes back to what you were saying earlier is uh, what do they get out of it? Um, And South Carolina Senator Tim Scott is somebody who has legislative power. South Carolina has a large black population. And this is somebody every step of the way who has voted against black people. And his grift is so fascinating because similar to Condoleezza Rice, but she wasn't elected official. He often calls on his black Southern roots. He often lets you know that um, I know racism because I went from cotton to Congress. I I know it. How dare you tell me? Because I I managed to to pull myself up by my bootstraps like Booker T. Washington. And if you can't do it, well, you're just lazy and shiftless. He fits all of the tropes, but he has serious, serious power. He has power. And it is a example, you're right. In the beginning, he seemed to have some redeeming qualities. But somebody who I interviewed in the book, Rep. Gilliard in in South Carolina, who worked with him, according to him, his words, he said there was a a protest about voting rights in South Carolina. And all the black folks walk out of the room, and even some of the white folks. And with voter suppression laws in in South Carolina, Tim Scott didn't walk out. And allegedly, according to Rep. Gilliard, he said that Tim Scott told him, I'm in this for the money. I think some Democrats are in it for the money as well, too. Let me just be clear. So I, I could write a whole book on Democrats, but anyway. But 
But with that money comes denying there is systemic racism, denying that voter suppression is an issue, and it comes with upholding white supremacy politics. I think Senator Tim Scott is very dangerous and should not be ignored. He is somebody that makes GOP donors very proud. The GOP, they only select black folks in reaction to. So they select Clarence Thomas, Supreme Court justice because of Thurgood Marshall, Justice Thurgood Marshall. They and I love Michael Steele. I think he deserved to be the RNC chair, but he was obviously selected because President Barack Obama wins. He should have been selected years ago to be the RNC chair. I could go on and on. But they have that Vice President Kamala Harris there. They want, I truly believe, they want black tokenism as the VP slot, whoever the uh, nominee is. And I think it's a clear shot. It might be a Tim Scott, a Byron Donalds, Florida rep, or, or Ben Carson. So Tim Scott's grift is really fascinating, really dangerous, and it has a legislative impact with no accountability. Tim Scott, I, I think, above and beyond his occasionally crazy statements that, you know, welfare did more damage to black people than slavery and his claims that he didn't see any racism, et cetera, et cetera. I think he's also an example of what we talked about, the glass ceiling or the black ceiling for these candidates, because arguably here you are, this historic African-American senator from South Carolina, you're very well known, um, and, and he decides that he's going to run for president, and still the, the the Republican Party abandoned him. Talk a little bit about this sort of abandonment issues that some of these Republicans have, the Arthur Davises, the Tim Scotts, uh, the Daniel Camerons, the Mia Loves. You have so many who sacrifice so much to get smacked in the face. Is it something that intimidates other Republicans? Does it make other black Republicans say, hey, I want to sign up for it because, you know, uh, even if I shoot for the moon and I miss, I'm a part of the stars. How does that look to other people when they see the kind of sacrifices we saw from Tim Scott? I would push back a bit, Dr. Jason Johnson, on a sacrifice. I don't think it was a sacrifice for Tim Scott. Tim Scott is set for life. Tim Scott obeyed the rules. I don't think that it's a sacrifice. I think it's about proximity to power. Some folks have lost that proximity to power, right? Some folks have definitely lost it and they might never get it back. But um, I don't think they are these sacrificial lambs. Um, I, I think if we frame it as a sacrifice, it's almost like they are victims. So at the the second half of the title is the cult of Trump. Now, while I do believe Trumpism is, is a cult, one thing I make it clear in the book, because I actually interviewed people who survived the horrific Jim Jones massacre in 1978, that members of a cult, they are often victims, right? But these folks are not victims. They're in a cult, but they are not in the murder-suicide, okay? They, are, they, are, they have joined the cult. They found a cult leader. And they are excited to be a part of it. They, they found their people. I want to play this sound from Daniel Cameron speaking at the 2020 Republican National Convention. And on the other side, I want to talk a little bit about where Trump's role is in all of this. We are defenders of life and of individual liberty. And we carry the mantle of Eisenhower and of Reagan to be a force for good in this world. And one that must always be reckoned with. That's my Republican Party the party of Lincoln that believes America is an indispensable nation, an evergreen tree 
standing tall in a turbulent world. And that's why I am voting for Donald Trump for president. Thank you and God bless. Trump has elicited this sort of strange loyalty. What is it about Trump that brought these these grifters out? Because I don't think that, I think we would have faced, even, you know, reading your book, I think we would have continued in an era of, of post-Obama Black Republicans for a while if you didn't have this guy come out and all but say, look, Black people, you can be just as cynical about the system as me, but you can get paid. I mean, I think that's why Trump was always popular with rappers, because it was like, he's the guy saying F the system. So talk about Trump's role in rising up this new generation of grifters. These people don't seem to be successful electorally, but there is a grift with it. What's Trump's role in that? Well, one thing that I always say is that Trump is the hate that Republicans created. This is decades and decades in the making. It is not a shocker the GOP would elect someone like Trump. Trump could, Democrats are not perfect, but Trump could never get elected as a, a, a Democrat. That's just it, it just, it just would not happen. We tear each other apart. We cannibalize each other. We'll throw you out fat quick in, in, in a hot minute and, and demand that you resign. With Trumpism, uh, the circus attracts clowns. And the GOP has been a circus for a long time. And one might say the monster may have ate itself, but this is what they've cultivated. This is what they have created. This is what their base likes. And as horrible and as vapid as I think Trump is, I do think Trump did his homework when it came to, or someone told him, when it came to Barry Goldwater, the Arizona senator, one of the um, the architects of the Southern strategy, uh, Richard Nixon, that how can we rely on white fears to make sure that we maintain that white vote? And so using fear tactics, using otherism, he has been able to show exactly who the GOP is, who they've been for a very long time. So when you have a clown like him, the clown comes to the surface, the pus comes to the surface, the infection comes to the surface, it creates other infections. It creates other foolishness. And then you're suddenly surprised and mortified that how did it get this bad? What is sad about all of this is that we really do need two functioning parties. And the GOP, if they actually created policies that helped black communities, if they actually had a health care plan, if they actually had a gun legislation plan, if they actually believed in justice reform, if they actually believed in helping kids who need a free school lunch, if they actually worked on policies, and maybe Michael Steele was that last road not taken, they could have an impact. Because you know this, we as Black voters, we're not wedded to Democrats. We either vote Democrat or don't vote at all. And the largest voting block is the non-voter. But what they do instead is they pathologize us for not voting for their white supremacy. And then they lift up the buffoonery, the clowns on steroids that we have today. It goes right down to the heart of Trump is the hate they created, and it brings a lot more gremlins after them. Clay, let's say this book is being handed out to 
to non-voters in Central Michigan. It's being handed out to a bunch of 22 to 32 year olds in Texas who are like, I don't think this matters to me one way or another. For somebody who is that non-voting block of black people, what's the one thing you want them to get out of this book if they read it? If you don't do politics, politics will do you. The last chapter of the book, I have a what's next chapter. And I lay out some solutions. Now that I've exposed the grift, what is there to do next? There's this stat that I have in the book that in 1868, 80%, 80, 80 in 1868 of eligible black voters, sadly not black women, they couldn't vote, women couldn't vote back then, were registered to vote. We were able to reinvent and take over the South reinvent completely, take over from dish, from, from, from DAs to tax collectors to, to, to lieutenant governor and so on. And they saw this significant power. And that's part of the reason why Reconstruction ends because they saw our electoral power. But we had less power and massive voter suppression, black men being slain at the polls, like voter suppression you couldn't even imagine. We had less power then and we used our power more. We have more power now and we use our power less. I want us to fully capitalize on our power because the other side, they are ready. They have a long game. I believe their ultimate goal is to overturn that 1964 Civil Rights Act. And Jason, I don't want us to get to a point when we are at some Neo 1864. I'm sorry, 1868. We finally get the urgency. I don't want us to get that desperate. And listen, I'm all about vote out these old guard Democrats. Vote them out. Let's take over the Democratic Party the way the Tea Party took over the GOP, the way the MAGA cult took over the GOP. Let's take it over. Let's put in more people that believe in reparations that has to go through Congress, that believe in ending the filibuster that has to go through Congress. That believes expanding the Supreme Court has to go through Congress. You know, we got to have the long game. If we don't do politics, it's going to do us. Another reason why I wrote this book is because I do love this country. And as Baldwin said, I love it enough to critique it. And I'm not going nowhere. I don't want to see us go backwards. And anybody who is contributing to regressing must be called out. I mean, they are telling us what they're going to do. They're telling us, I will be a dictator. They're banning books. All the signs are there. I lay this out in the book that the end of Reconstruction, we could be at the end of whatever era they will call this. So that's what I would say. Um, I hope the book inspires folks to be involved. If you are a quote unquote real conservative, although I don't know what you're trying to conserve, but if you are, do you want hustlers and con artists in your party? Is that what you want? Do you want the... Omarosa, Minister Omarosa, do you want the Herschel Walkers? Because if you do want that, you're part of the problem. So I, I hope that folks can see it that way. The book is part history, part cultural analysis. It's passion, it's fire, it's accessible. And I hope that it has some kind of impact in 2024. Clay Kane is a journalist, and his new book is The Grift, The Downward Spiral of Black Republicans from the Party of Lincoln to the Cult of Trump. Clay, anytime. I always love talking to you, man. Thanks for coming on to work. Thank you. Appreciate you, man. And that's a word for this week. 
The show's email is a word at slate.com. This episode was produced by Christy Taiwo Macanjula. Ben Richmond is Slate's Senior Director of Podcast Operations. Alicia Montgomery is the Vice President of Slate Audio. Our theme music was produced by Don Will. I'm Jason Johnson. Tune in next week for a word.